Thank you for downloading our podcast. This Christmas season, we consider Luke's testimony of Christ. Luke sets out to write an orderly account so that his friend Theophilus can be certain regarding the things he has been taught. What is Luke fundamentally teaching us about the significance of Christ and Christ's entrance into history? When we look at Luke's gospel once again, or at least I guess I've looked at this several times over the years for the birth narrative, and it's always amazing how deep the scriptures are. It seems you have a decent grasp of a text over time, and then it seems that there's always something more you can mine from it. And looking at this again and and contrasting it with Zachariah and Elizabeth and, and this young woman, Really, in, in terms of society, a nobody. In, in terms of what you have in a previous narrative. And one of the questions that, that I had with the text is, why is it, you know, God in his providence and his sovereignty, he could have easily brought about a child through Elizabeth in, in a priestly line, a prestigious line. In his providence, he, he could have had her tied to the lineage of David. And the Lord didn't do that. And it's one of those things where you say, why is it that there's this unknown person? In fact, in in Luke's gospel, he he presents her in such a way, we don't know the family line. We, We really know nothing about Mary. And she comes from this little podunk, nothing town. I mean, it's something where even as archaeologists, we we have a pretty good idea where it is because it's found here, but we still, we, we don't really know much about it. It's really not that significant. It's not like Jerusalem. And so we, we wonder, why is it that when the Lord writes a Christmas story, and as we heard in Luke's Gospel last time, there's, there's a deliberate story that Luke's telling us. It's not to say this contradicts the other Gospels. But Luke is certainly asserting himself and saying, I'm making a contribution to the inspired word of God as I write this gospel. It's a deliberate account and a deliberate story. So why is it in Luke's casting of this story, as he tells it, as he does his research, we have Matthew, as we heard in our gospel of assurance this morning, Matthew identifies the name of Christ And has Joseph named the child? But here in Luke's gospel, how how it's presented the initial announcement of Christ, Mary, an insignificant one, is given the name of Christ, and we don't even really fully grasp the significance of his name, at least at this point in the gospel account. And so why is that? What, What is Luke doing? Why is Christ coming through this particular line instead of the priestly line that would seem to make more sense in terms of our rational capacity and how we might want to do things. But clearly God's wiser than we are, and there is a purpose. And so what is that purpose? Begin then by looking at the glorious announcement, and secondly, the glorious accomplishment. And so what is this announcement? Well, as I mentioned, there's a progress in the narrative. So we've moved from Elizabeth being told that she will have a child She's been in hiding. So at this point, when we look in uh, verse 26, we have in the sixth month. 
we don't really have the, the context other than it's most likely as it piggybacks in the previous narrative at this point, we don't know until the end of this narrative, but at this point, it seems that Luke wants us to put this in the context of the announcement of John the Baptist, that, that something's happening. So Elizabeth has been in hiding for five months. This is one month after that. And now we move to this completely different story, right? I mean, that's, that's how we have to read this if we're reading this for the first time. Luke's trying to build up the drama, build up the significance of this narrative. He wants us to understand who this Mary is. And I think it's important to understand that when you get to the Song of Mary and you see that the parallel of the Song of Moses, which we'll be uh, covering uh, in, in a, basically a week or two. So when we look at this now, when we think about Mary now, six months, we have this angel Gabriel once again entering history. Uh, we anticipate there's going to be a Messiah. We, we anticipate that's going to happen because we have in 1 verse 17 with the announcement of uh, Gabriel that he's going to make the people ready for the Lord, right? He's preparing the way. So we think of Isaiah 40. We think of Malachi 3. We think about these texts that the Lord has predicted in covenant history that the Messiah is coming. So now we're, we're beginning to speculate, oh, this six month, could this be the announcement of the Messiah? Is that what Luke is going to, to do here? So it seems that would be the logic of it. And we don't know right away. Luke doesn't allow us to, to immediately have that answer. And so as we, we jump to this narrative where Elizabeth would now be out of hiding, uh, it's been one month after she has come out of hiding, we have this, this woman that all of a sudden there's this virgin betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph. He's of the house of David. Her name's Mary. So you would think that, that right here, that the significant character, like in Matthew's gospel, is going to be Joseph. He's the one who's mentioned first. You, you would think the angel would speak to him because he's the one who's of the lineage of David. He would give the, the Messiah, the, the genealogical credibility, if you will, um, because we think of the Lord's promise to David. We think of the Second Samuel 7. We, we think of the Lord promising that he's going to establish David's household forever. So we think, oh, okay, this, this makes sense. We would expect Joseph to be the significant figure. When you look at the subtlety of Luke's writing, her name is Mary. Well, if, if you know the Hebrew language and you think back to the song of Miriam, you think of Mary being the, the basically it would be the Greek translation of Miriam, so there's a, a correlation of those names. The name means rebellion. So you, you say, why is this guy in the lineage of David marrying someone whose name means rebellion? And, 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 and what, is, what is the significance of this person? And then you find that here, you know, prior to this, you have the city of Galilee named Nazareth. So it's not just saying in the district of Galilee. It's calling our attention to this, this nothing town. That, as I mentioned in the introduction, as we've done archaeological digs, it seems this is a place where it's largely agricultural, but, but it's not successful agriculture, if you will. It's, it's people basically eking out a living. 
Uh, this this would very much be, you know, where we think of some of the stereotypes of just a backwoods town. Uh, it's not a place you're going to go to engage in philosophical discussions. It's not a place where you're going to expect people to be very well-read or literate or very articulate. Uh, it's, it's a place that's easily dismissed. That's Nazareth. So right here, this, this city is very insignificant. This woman's name means rebellion. And so you wonder what in the world is a good Lord doing in, in this particular place? Why does any of this matter? We can understand Joseph in a theology of, you know, the, this guy coming as a kinsman redeemer and, and delivering this poor woman out of this place. But that's not how Luke presents it. Comes to Mary. And as Gabriel comes to Mary, this is a prestigious angel. This is the one who has met with Daniel. This is the one who has met with the prestigious priests prior to this, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah meaning the Lord remembers. Elizabeth meaning the fullness of God or God's oath. So again, rich, rich names, rich heritage. Coming to a woman whose name means rebellion in a small town. Not in a temple not in the holy place, not before the altar. But the implication is in her presence, that she's in her house. And when you think about this, this woman as is presented here, you think about this language of her being a, a young virgin. Now, the language here is, uh, it echoes Isaiah 7. Uh, if you're familiar with some of the attempts to discredit the text in the virgin birth, People will say, well, Isaiah 7 just means young maiden. Uh, the virgin birth of Mary is not necessarily that it's a virgin birth. It's just, uh, this is just a young maiden. Well, the, the text in Luke is very clear that she never knew a man. There's a woman who's engaged. There's a woman who has not compromised her engagement, to put it, I think, family-friendly from the pulpit. Uh, this is a woman who is pure in terms of her marriage commitment and her betrothal. So in terms of this, as Luke is deliberate, and he's very deliberate when you read this, very deliberate to make that case, that as he says this, we find that here this angel Gabriel, this prestigious angel, messenger from heaven, comes to her. And as she's some peasant trying to eke out a living, he makes this announcement. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now notice verse 29, when, when Zechariah saw the angel, he was troubled. Now I'm not mocking him, because the reality is if, if we're in the midst of prayer or, or we're going someplace and all of a sudden an angel appears in glorious luminosity in front of us, I think all of us would be a little taken back, like, whoa, what's going on? I don't know what I ate, but I probably shouldn't eat that again, right? That's the first response. Notice Mary's response, and this is something I think that's a rather comical contrast. Zechariah, prestigious priest, going into the temple, expecting to encounter God. Mary's not shocked by the angel. I mean, that's the part that really cracks me up about the text. That the thing that would freak me out the most doesn't shock her. But what shocks her is the greeting. That he comes to her and he identifies her as a favored one. Do you understand how Mary identifies herself by being shocked by that greeting? She understands, I'm not worthy of the Lord's affection. <clears throat> I'm just 
Some individual eking out a living who may know how to milk a goat, may know how to raise up some animals, may know how to cultivate some fields. But by no means am I a prestigious farmer. By no means am I a prestigious person. Who am I to be called a favored one? I mean, this is something where you are encountered by a character who understands her lowly place as being such an ingrained part of her that the angel doesn't shock her. Greeting her as a favored one is a part that shocks her, clearly as a contrast to Zechariah, the priest, the prestigious one, who should expect to see the Lord and is shocked by coming into the presence of an angel. And as we hear this, we find that as the Lord says to Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayers. So they've been asking God for a child. Here we have no indication that Mary is asking this sort of thing. She's going about her business conscious as a humble individual. And as the angel goes on, the angel gives this assurance that she is not to be afraid. And why? Because you have found favor with God. We know nothing about this woman other than her name is Mary and it means rebellion. So we're finding so far she is a humble uh, person, not in the sense of just piety, like in the sense of Moses, but humble in the sense that very insignificant in terms of, of culture and society. Secondly, she is also one whose name means rebellion, but that's overturned. Because clearly the Lord doesn't see her as a rebel. The identification of her being a favored one means that the Lord is bestowing his mercy upon her. And so this means that she has a significant place. Now when we hear about this, this woman, and we hear who she is, that she's found favor with God, we don't know of her genealogy, which is something else that's significant. Because we, we know who her husband is. But the implication of Mary in the text is that she may actually be an orphan. She may be an insignificant orphan as we go on, maybe receiving some subsidy from Zachariah and Elizabeth. As it goes on, we find their family. But the implication is she could very well be an orphan, no mother, no father. And an orphan in this culture, in this town, is very difficult. You have no advocate. You have no provision. And so for, for Mary, her significance would be the marriage. Having Joseph as a man who's going to care for her, provide for her, and so you can understand her vulnerability. Uh, apart from this identity, she has nothing, but you find she's not identified in childbirth. She's not identified in the significance of her husband. She's identified by the Lord, the Most High, who has bestowed his mercy upon her. And so you, you find the significance. Not only is she going to have a son like Elizabeth, we have here a contrast. She will name him. This is not like what we see with Zachariah. Zachariah is the one who's to name the child, not Elizabeth. We have here also the, identi the identity, he will be great, just like we see with John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is going to prepare the way this is the ultimate redeemer. Notice the identity and significance of this son. This son is going to be called two things, son of the most high and son of David. 
So this establishes the significance of Joseph in the story because it links Christ to the, the promise made to David. But we're seeing the fulfillment of that covenant. That it's not just that this child is going to have a genealogical line to David, but the child is also to be the son of God. And so right here we see the messianic glory of what's coming to pass. We, we have this strange identity that we're trying to, to process with this woman and her insignificance and all of a sudden finding significance and having to process all the, the things that the angel has just said. And so then we understand this glorious announcement. But what about the glorious accomplishment? Well, as we go on, and Mary asks a question. And a, little, a literal rendering of her question is, how will this be since I never knew a man? And so for, for her, it's not, I'm just a young maiden. For her, it's, I'm a young maiden who has never compromised my marriage vows or, or my betrothal, is what she's saying. And so she's, she's not responding like Zachariah. Zacharias, well, how, how can this be? We've been barren. I, I don't believe you listen to prayer. I don't believe you overcome barrenness. Even though there's a whole precedent of the Lord doing this in covenant history. It's not outside the, the realm of possibility based upon what God has done to bring life from a barren couple. This is the very beginning of the covenant of grace with Abraham, isn't it? A barren couple producing life. Right, And so right there, Zachariah and Elizabeth, we're thinking of that story and that narrative and that precedent. Here Mary, rebellion, is just laying out the, the logical reality. How can this come to pass? This has never been done before in history. I, I don't understand what you're saying. Well, the angel tells her that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her in power. So this means that this child will come about uh, using Mary and the Holy Spirit. And this child is going to be called the Son of God. So not just Jesus as she is going to name him, but he's going to be called the Son of God. And so the, the name here, as we have this name, he will be called Son of God, but she's going to name him Jesus. Now as we hear about Mary naming this child Jesus, Luke doesn't make this explicit, like Matthew. He shall save his people from their sins. In other words, Jesus means Yahweh saves. Joshua would be the, the Hebrew rendering of this same name, which is what it literally means, Yahweh saves, or, or the Lord saves. So when, when you hear this, and, and uh, Mary is, is to name this child Jesus, you know, obviously many people connect this to Isaiah 7. I'd say Matthew's narrative wants us to go back to Isaiah 7. But I would say what Luke wants us to do is to think about childbearing in terms of covenant history. And so in, in terms of childbearing in covenant history, you think back Abraham and Sarai. We have the precedent here of the one child who comes about through a barren couple, life coming from death, Romans 4. Paul uh, brings out that theology of, of Abraham and Sarah. And you think about that in the reality of Zechariah and Elizabeth and how the Lord is doing that, bringing about once again this same old promise. But the newness comes where we have a contrast between Mary and Hagar. 
And when we read Hagar, there's an interesting thing that goes on there. Hagar is banished from the home. Why? Because she did what Sarai wanted her to do. She was obedient. Uh, She gave forth a child and she fulfilled her role as a humble handmaid, right? That was her job. Bring forth a child. Well, that's not the heir of the covenant. But yet we find a significance, even a typology of the seed of the woman, don't we? Because the Lord, the angel of the Lord, Christ pre-incarnate, and this is pretty profound, Christ pre-incarnate, standing before Hagar as she's pregnant with a child. And Christ pre-incarnate stands over and says, listen, we've heard your reproach. We're taking away your reproach through this child, right? So she's going to have an identity through this child bearing. But this child is not the one that's, that's truly going to bring about any true redemptive purpose. Even as the Lord looks upon this humble handmaid who is insignificant or flees from the home because Sarai doesn't want her and is jealous of her. As she flees from the home, what does the Lord say to her? But listen, I've heard your prayers and I'm going to make this child significant on account of you, right? So you have this this wonderful encouragement to this handmaid, this insignificant person sent away. And what does he say? You shall name this child Ishmael. For the Lord hears. In other words, it's, it's that reminder that the Lord hears the prayers. And so you have an insignificant handmaid, insignificant woman, maybe an orphan. You have an insignificant handmaid giving a name to a child that means the Lord hears. But then it goes on to say, but this child doesn't really say. This child doesn't really uh, take away all the problems of humanity. It takes away her reproach in the sense that she is able to deliver a child, she is able to uh, produce what she is called to produce, but it doesn't really save. And that's what Luke is calling to our attention. And I'd argue he's setting the boundaries kind of like what Paul does with Israel. You know, you have the child of the flesh and the child of the promise. Here is the child of the promise. This child doesn't just take away the reproach of his mother, giving her an identity, but the child takes away the reproach of the Lord's people. That there is also a precedent, a a setting of a child bringing significance to an individual and to a home, but not bringing it so it's lasting. The difference with this child is it will last, it will endure, and it's going to bring true life. And as Hagar doesn't find her ultimate identity and redemption in the in the delivery of the child. So we have, it's not that Mary finds her ultimate redemption and delivery of this child, but Mary, like us, we all need to look to this child for life. And how do we know that? Because as Mary, like Hagar, gives this child a name, showing her significance, her embracing the promise of God, that this name comes to pass. Yes, I believe, thus so it be done. You know, it's that, that, it's that submission to the Lord. What does she say? She doesn't say, behold, I am the one who has my reproach taken away because I have given birth to this child. She doesn't say, I am the mother of this child, therefore my reproach is taken away. But she says, I am your servant. Think about the identity of that. That right there, it's not like Zachariah saying, well, how can this be? 
All right, you're not going to talk. There, you're not going to tell anyone what's going on. You're going to have to stay silent until the child enters history. What does Mary say? I don't understand how this happens. The angel says, listen, the Lord's doing something unique in covenant history. He's bringing about the God-man, the son of David, son of God, and he's entering history through you. Oh, okay. I believe God can do that. I am your servant. May it be so is basically what she's saying. And so right here, you're having a precedent as to how the people of God are going to have an identity. It's not through childbearing. It's not through naming a child. It's not through claiming covenant lineage to Abraham, just in terms of the genealogy. But it's finding our identity in the substance of our faith, Jesus Christ, and believing that it is only in Christ we will be saved. And even Mary herself, what is she saying? It is only in this child I will have redemption. Not in that she delivers a child or brings a child into history, but as a servant of the Most High, she embraces this child as a savior of his people. And so, yes, in that sense, we have our identity in the covenant lineage of Abraham. But it's only as we look to the Christ who promised in the covenant of grace to deliver his people. And so as Mary then was with child, and we can say, why is Christ coming through this line? We have a significant setting in covenant history, don't we? A setting where the handmaids, the insignificant, are easily cast away, discarded, forgotten. Who cares what happens to them? And how these individuals have no advocate when they're cast away. But yet we find what? Precedent with Hagar the one who is cast away, the one who doesn't even bring in the child of promise, the Lord still looks upon her as an advocate. This Mary, cast in Luke's gospel at least, potentially as an orphan, insignificant, no genealogy, expecting to go through life, merely eking out a living, living out some days under the sun, maybe raising up a family, having some children, and then at the end of her life, dying and being completely unrecognized and unknown in terms of the annals of history. That seems to be her expectation of life. And yet we find the Lord is what? The one who looks upon the reproach of his people. And it's important to understand the setting of Mary as being that humble servant, that humble one. Again, not in the sense of Moses, in the sense of humble piety, but humble in the sense of insignificant in the world. When you get to the Song of Mary, that's the play of what's going on there by the Lord. But what this fundamentally teaches us is that when you look at this narrative, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the prestigious genealogy, the significant ones, they're not looking to their child. They're looking to Christ. You have the significant ones, need to humble themselves, like Mary, not finding their significance in this age, understanding that their reproach is taken away in this child. Mary, the humble one, recognizes that it's not in the delivery of this child, but it's in the looking of this child, being a servant of the Most High, that her reproach 
That is the, the shame, the, the people looking upon an individual, easily discarding them, knowing that life is only found in this Christ. When we understand who we are, let us recognize that, yes, our Lord is our shield and defender. Our Lord is our advocate. But as we humble ourselves before him, that's where we have true life in Christ. He doesn't come to the worthy. He doesn't come to the prestigious. He takes the unworthy and makes them worthy. Let us not then find our identity and significance in this age. But let us find our identity and significance in our God, the one who is able to take away the reproach, the shame, the sins, whatever his people has done, and bring them into the Lord's presence so they can commune with him. Let us find our identity and our Savior who saves to the uttermost. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.